Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from a PhD in industrial design on the importance and process for designing your invention to meet customer needs. Welcome back everyone. Today I'm very excited to introduce Thomas Ask to the show. Thomas is a professor of industrial design at Penn College, sister school to Penn State. He's been in the hardware product development world for over 30 years, has also helped build two hardware startups, and has achieved his PhD in industrial design. Today Thomas is going to share some valuable knowledge for inventors, startups, and small manufacturers on what ethnocentric design is, why it is valuable for a hardware startup, and the process to ensure you do a great job of getting inside the mind of your customers so that you can best achieve both design and sales of your invention product. Now on to the episode. Hi Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Good to be with you. Or excited to talk to you today about designing for others. So how do you actually invent something with the intent of selling to your actual end buyers? There's quite a connection between the idea that you have yourself and what the customers actually want to buy. So how do you put yourselves into their shoes? Now, before we get into all of that, just give us a bit of a backstory of how you got to be the success story that you are today. Well, Kevin, I've been involved with a couple startups in the past, and I studied mechanical engineering at the University of Illinois and got my PE license some years later and went on for my doctorate. And I've always had a passion for inventing and designing things. It's really where my heart is. As the days have gone by, I've gotten more and more into teaching. So now I serve as a professor of industrial design here at Penn College. I do consulting, do a lot of design work and love it just as much now as I did 30 years ago. Amazing. That's a great story. And you've got your doctorate in industrial design. That's amazing as well. Well, in the academic world, there's motivators for that. (laughs) Great. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a bit about this subject in around ethnocentric design. Give us a bit of a definition of what this is. Well, this is looking at design as deriving from other people's interests. So most of us have a passion for designing things that we want. We like to invent things. We like to create something from nothing to work in the void and love the idea of what lies over the horizon. But there's another element to that, namely, how do you design for other people who think a lot differently than you do? And how do you extract that kind of information? What do you do with it? How do you sort of fit your own creative insights into other people's interests? And this applies most specifically to people in different cultures or people who are demographically quite different than you. So if you're designing for an 85-year-old woman, you've got to think like an 85-year-old woman. If you're designing for a four-year-old boy, you've got to think like a four-year-old boy. And that's sort of this ethnographically-based design pursuit that I research here and that we actively do in our design projects. You said something interesting to me before the show. You said there's a difference between inventing something and inventing something for somebody. Talk a bit about that and how that fits into all this. Yeah, exactly. And it probably deals with a deeper issue with pride and ego. So often creating a business, and I've been through a couple startups, and when you have your name on a business, there's a lot on the line and you want to express yourself. It's almost an artistic thing. You want to say, hey, here's my idea. You guys have to love it. Well, when you're designing for someone else, you're repressing that. You're subordinating those concerns for the concerns of others. And there's a scientific way to do that. So if you're designing for someone who loves something that you hate, loves a color that you hate, hate, whatever those issues are,
are, you have to say, okay, this is what they want. And the way you do it technically, and this sounds really anti-creative, anti-inventive, is you look at data, you look at information. So if I ask you, Kevin, what's your favorite vacation activity? And it turns out to be curling, the thing with the ice, or some kind of activity that I have zero interest. Well, I have to say, all right, I've got to get into your mind and figure out why do you like this activity? What motivates you? What problems do you see in it? What problems can I solve? And that's ethnography. It's studying other people. And we're really good at it. We, we know how to do this stuff from childhood. We layer a couple of techniques in with that. And you get this really powerful tool of saying, this person over there, this is what they want. These are problems that they face that no one's ever addressed. These are issues that rise up in their life that they don't know how to solve. And I can deal with this. I can solve their problem. And there's a lot of that out there. That's very powerful, especially when you're looking at your core innovation, because most of the time there's many different possible use case scenarios. There's many avatars for potential end customers. So if you can look at the different variety of options, you can start to explore and put yourself in the mind of potentially your best and highest use buyer, somebody who's really going to be attracted to that core innovation that you have. So even before you're developing the product, if you can figure out who that demographic is, then allow yourself to put yourself in the shoes of that person to try and build a great product around that. You talk a lot about the process around this type of design. Walk us through that process, especially as an inventor, whether technical or non-technical, what are you trying to think through as you're applying your invention idea to that end user and thinking about them first? Yeah, that's a very broad question. And you know, it's interesting for people that are listening now, they're trying to do this professionally. Like this isn't a hobby. You're trying to make something that has value in the market. And that whole notion of commerce is really attractive. So it's very different than the fine arts. We don't just make beautiful things. We make things that work and that help people. So you have some cases, like one example, that was a big question, but just one example that might illustrate this is uh, Crohn's disease. I've dealt with some different medical issues where people have issues that I don't have. And for me to design something for them, I really have to understand what works for them, what they're dealing with. And so the very first step to your question is developing a level of empathy for the user, the person you're designing for in this case, and in the case of an individual or group of individuals, what is going on in their life? What is their concern? And you do this with sort of formal ethnographic techniques. So again, to your question, it often starts with identifying a problem or a population that has a distinctive issue and then asking them questions. So it's interviewing them. It's like we're doing here. It's doing questionnaires. It's doing observations. So as Margaret Mead famously said, what people say and what people do are very different. So I can say that I never eat junk food, but when you look into my garbage can, you'll see lots of junk food wrappers in there. So the data says, no, you know what? At 10 o'clock at night, he's going out and having a candy bar. He doesn't admit to it, but that's what's happening. So it's getting this raw data because especially in some arenas, people don't want to talk about things. They have certain problems that they just don't want to talk about or things that they've accommodated that they don't necessarily need to accommodate. Humans are really good at solving our own problems, but if an inventor can get in there and say, oh, wait a second, this works really well. Like I was just talking to a lady today. She said, the thing I hate the most about handbags is when I have to slide past a zipper. She just doesn't like the tactile feel and the way her rings get cut. I don't know these things. So the only way I can find these things is to ask those kinds of questions. So that's the first step. And then the second step, I mean, in a simple way is ideation, you know, idea generation. That's the inventing part. It's the part we all love, creating all these really cool ideas and trying to infuse those with the things you've learned from ethnographic study, from asking people questions and watching how they actually behave. And then you get feedback on that. So you show people a bunch of things. In fact, I've taken kind of an embarrassing way. I've taken foam models, you know, kind of simple models in a five-gallon bucket and poured it on the conference room table at a corporate meeting. And these are kind of simple models, but people love that stuff because they pick them up and they experiment with them. And it's all very real because so often we sit there and jabber on and on, or we even make sketches, but people really want to touch and feel things. That's part of the ideation and 
feedback too. That's great. That's a great three-step process as well. And that is kind of the standard process that if executed well, can almost ensure and de-risk the success of your product because you're utilizing your customer feedback to ensure that you're matching what they actually want. I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. When you're in that questioning phase and when you're working with a prospective customer or prospective customer type, somebody who may be either a wholesale buyer or actually an end customer, what are the types of questions that you're trying to get out of these individuals? Are there any other kind of processes or frameworks that you you like to use to build out that Q&A model to get the best information back to feed into your design or invention? That's actually a really big question. Formally, it starts with something called a cultural consensus questionnaire. Namely, is the person I'm talking to really have a valid position in this arena? So if you're talking about, say, diabetes and you talk to somebody without diabetes, well, that's in useless data. So you want to know who you're talking to and make sure they're actually the stakeholders. And then moving on from that, the way I do it is normally some kind of questionnaire that's sort of structured. I ask certain questions. And yeah, what are those questions? Well, it varies depending on the nature of the beast. So it's hard to get sort of the formulaic answer to that. It is very much talk about some design. What do you like about what you're using now? What don't you like? And then very quickly layering that with observing how they're behaving. Because you can see little ticks where people are making a movement or doing something. And here I'm talking about modifying something instead of the brand new design, which is what many of us love. But you see them doing things. You go, well, you know, if we changed how this was set up, they would do it in a better way. So it's questioning and observation. And actually, as a follow-up, the feedback loop is important. One of the really surprising examples I have in my work was designing this fishing boat. And I was dealing with people, well, Malaysians, and they looked at my drawings. And I didn't learn until I was into this process that some of the people thought what I was proposing was to make a boat out of metal instead of wood. So they didn't like the design because they thought it was metal, even though it wasn't metal, because metal sinks. And in some countries, they don't have a Coast Guard. If you have a metal boat and it breaks apart, which they do, then you have no life raft. I thought that was a really interesting example because the way I presented it as a drawing, they inferred things that weren't in there. So that's an example of sort of cultural identification. We take things for granted, like, you know, we've got life preservers or we've got some inflatable stuff that will save us, but that's not true in all cultures. Yeah, it's pretty amazing because they actually disliked the design of your product because they thought it was out of metal, not because they actually disliked the design. Exactly. So it's interesting, I guess, as you drill down into the reason why they disliked it, you could start to discover maybe the underlying issues that were essentially clouding the overall genius of the actual design that you're presenting. Yeah, that's very well said, Kevin. I like those words. <laughs> so how did it end up working out after that? Well, I used a different way of presenting things. I didn't use drawings. I used models actually to communicate. So I was dealing with translators and written forms. And this went on for many months. I ended up using models though. I mean, the continuation of that story is there are many people that don't want radical changes from tradition. And in the case of fishing boat design, that was part of it as well, that you'll be super careful when you design something that people depend upon for their lives. That was how that ended up. It was kind of in the middle of the road, not too radical. I remember Elon Musk mentioning that he couldn't make his car design too crazy or too futuristic mm -hmm. because market would just walk away. So he had to play this delicate balance between yeah. the features he wanted and the modern technologies and tools he wanted and traditional car design, how to keep it kind of hand in hand. Although I have a feeling the regulators had a lot to do with that conversation, but that's the reality. If you move too fast past the goalpost, even if it's better, 
are more beneficial, you have to bring in that human factor and that human value. And that's where the feedback loop can be so powerful. Really understanding that the innovation that you are creating is better, but also realistic. Would they buy this particular thing? And that's the key question. You mentioned it at the beginning of this conversation. You mentioned the concept of commercialization. That really is what almost all inventors that are serious about their product and trying to commercialize it is trying to do. You're trying to change the world by getting your actual product manufactured to market. So you've got to factor in a number of different possible layers, not just how great your invention is, but all these different human factors that weigh into decision-making if they're going to purchase it or not at the end of the day, which really is what it's all about when you get that product to market. Yeah, absolutely. We call these kind of mechanistic elements, the things that make things work. And if it doesn't work well, and if it's not intuitive, people won't buy it. And nobody reads user manuals. And we're really smart. So we want to be able to look at something and figure it out. We don't want to be educated in how to use it necessarily. So that sort of intuitive grasp of a design is really important. And invention is tough in a general way, because especially at the consumer level, it's such a saturated arena. I think as inventing can grow in certain arenas, and medical is a big one, but other areas too areas that are resistant to complex solutions. So entryways for an inventor, I think, can be dealing with complex designs because it scares the amateurs and also areas that aren't looked at very much. And even these sort of outline demographics, as I mentioned, old people or pets. I have people that get involved with the pet industry in ways I couldn't imagine. And pet training, there's all these outliers. If you try to design, and I have people in my world that design board games, and that's really good because that's a moving target. They have a certain life and then they move on, but that's more design than invention. But that's really saturated. Well, you've mentioned a lot of good things here, a lot of different actual design tips and tactics. Is there anything else that can help emerging startups in developing this process and thinking about ethnocentric design that we've left out? In response to that, the key is to truly empathize with the user, the people you're trying to address, and not in a cursory way. In other words, it's what I've seen a lot of, it's very easy for people to say, people of a certain age think this way, or people from this country think this way. That's often not correct. And there's a lot of crossover between populations. So for ethnocentric design that's rooted in ethnography, you're trying to really focus on a specific group and meet their needs really well and not get confused by kind of all the noise around you. Like, because often we go into inventing thinking, this is the answer. I have the answer. Here it is. And it's only, like you mentioned before, the feedback loop and a real dynamic feedback loop and one that truly is a feedback loop. Not just, here it is, what do you think? Thank you, bye. But let's talk about this. What do you think? Let's see your ideas. Let's sketch them out. Let's carve them in clay, which is something I like to do. Let's kind of play this out. And people really love that. And at the end of the day, you end up with a better invention. I love that you mentioned it kind of a couple of times, some of the fringe or niche industries can be powerful. And that is really a good advice for hardware startups because it's tough to compete with the mass market in the beginning with the first version right. of your product. Now, there's no issue in trying to conquer the world and absolutely get there, but keep in mind, you've got to start somewhere. So you've come up with your core innovation. And if you don't feature creep like crazy and really try and address one specific market and do a really good job at it, and of course, you know you're doing a good job if you followed these principles of understanding your customer very deeply, a specific subgroup of your customer even better, mm -hmm. then you can target them with a very well-made, high-quality product that specifically targets that audience and really only that audience, at least in the beginning. As you start to grow as a brand, you can continue to elicit feedback from more potential customer groups and expand your product offering into more and more, basically, market share over time. But it's difficult to do in the beginning, so it should be comfortable for hardware startups that you can spend less, be more targeted, ensure that the money that you are 
are spending is building a quality product that's easy to manufacture, that is reliable in production, and then of course is simple to use and reliable for the actual end user. And through that process, you're going to have an easier time actually capturing that market because it's easier to market and target to as well because it's more specific, it's more niche, it's more targeted. So if you follow that approach, definitely continue that feedback loop to expand the brand to eventually capture the mass market. But you've got to think as a hardware startup, where do you start? Yeah, absolutely. That's the case. And there's so many examples of that. We've dealt with like construction. If you look at construction workers and all the strange problems they deal with and how ingenious they are at solving them, if you can get into that space and present them some stuff, they love it. They want quality too. So like I said, medical construction. If you can say to a bricklayer, hey, this will trace mountain stone on your brick. It will scribe it in. And, and here's a whole system to chisel things in just a precise way or drywall or whatever. There's this really wide ranging needs that don't get addressed. You think of the people that don't really have a voice. And I'm not talking about that in any kind of like political way, but children, basically, if you're six, you don't have any say in what kind of toys that are presented to you. Someone's giving them to you. And who are those stakeholders? Well, it's probably mom and dad, the grandparents, they're the ones often buying the toys. So you've got to market to them. So that's why all these toys are educational when the six-year-old just wants to have fun. They don't want to be educated all the time. <laughs> so you know, you have this kind of dynamic as well. And then you have senior citizens that have a hard time opening the refrigerator door or, you know, or grabbing a fork and they don't want to lose their independence or the sense of the values that they had. If something is easy for a specific demographic to use, they have arthritis and they need some special forks and knives and things. You can still make them beautiful. I had a project once. This was interesting. It was kind of a unique one. It was for uh, quadriplegics who were incontinent. Well, the design I was replacing had no consideration of human dignity, I'll say. Just because people are dealing with an issue doesn't mean they don't want to fit in with the general population. And how do you know that stuff? Well, that's beyond this sort of just making it work, this kind of mechanistic stuff. This goes into the whole arena of people's pride and their dignity and their values and how they want to surround themselves with physical things that reflect themselves, that they can take pride in. That's an outer layer because usually, at least for me, when I think of inventing something, it's solving a problem. And the more complicated, the better. And if I solve the problem, I'm there. Well, you're not all the way there. You know, you've got to layer on these other issues that is where this sort of ethnocentric, where you say, you know what? That color is an unlucky color in that culture. That's the common one. You know, you're not going to paint it white or that number. You know, some areas you're paying extra money for certain numbers to be on your cell phone. And I think that's really fascinating. Well, much appreciated for you joining us on the podcast today and bringing up the subject, ethnocentric design. It's a very interesting topic and really elements of this applies to any new innovation, any new invention, how much or how little obviously differs by the type of product, but it's something everybody with all their products, anybody can think about and apply to the design of their product or even to the ideation and feedback of their products, no matter what you're developing for any market out there. So thanks again. Appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Thomas. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. If you found some value in the show, please do us a huge favor and leave us a quick five-star review. If you have any questions, guest suggestions, or anything else, feel free to reach out to us anytime at our email, podcast at macodesign.com. That's podcast at macodesign.com. This show is hosted by Kevin Macko, North America's leading expert on product development for physical product startups. Huge thanks to our sponsors, PTC, and their two best-in-class 3D CAD product development software solutions, Onshape and Creo. And Macko Design and Invent, the original firm providing world-class consumer product development services tailored specifically to startups, small manufacturers, and inventors. Thanks for joining and see you next time.